Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. We have another interview segment. I know it seems like they're far in between sometimes, but it's not easy to schedule people. Probably even more difficult now during the pandemic. We have a wonderful writer by the name of Heather Cook. She's from Canada. Uh, you probably read her story. If you haven't, it's still on, on Aerial Chart. It was the number one uh, read on that, on that particular journal for almost two months straight. And I, I track everything because that's just how I am. I don't know. Maybe it's an American thing. But uh, the show, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the journal is five years old as of June of this year. And that was the most read nonfiction piece that we, we published. That's, that's how much of an impact it had. So we got Heather Cook over here today. She's going to talk about the story within that, within that writing. Uh, a, a great deal of it will have to do with, with her son, Aaron. And, and how um, he had a, a, a noble and wonderful life, and then unfortunately he succumbed to a disease and, and died sooner than he than he should, and, and all the things that she had to go through with that. So thank you very much for having us be on the show. I know it's not a normal art literary show where we're talking about rhyme schemes and this grammar and that grammar. It's more more human than than most of these shows. But I'm still I'm still happy and blessed to have you on here, Heather Cook, folks. Heather, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Mark. Thanks so much. Well, it's um, it's a it's an incredible honor for me to be able to be speaking to uh, the story that was published with Aerial Chart, um, and the fact that this is my son that we are talking about. Uh, Aaron left us. It is now ten months um, since he left us. It was September thirteenth. Uh, 2020, and he continues his energy, his legacy continues to surround us, love us, hold us dear, and keep us going forward. So I'm honored, honored tonight to be able to speak uh, about how this story unfolded and the legs that this wonderful story has had. So um, here we are. We are we are blessed, uh, Heather, to have this because in many ways, even though you might want to look at it in a literary way, it's more of a literary slash human story because many times people are actually curious about, well, what happened behind that story? What's going on with that? This really gives people to give a, a real human story about what happened behind that writing. And that's another another wonderful reason to have to have a show like this is it really helps people to understand more. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Mark. So I'll just start talking and hopefully more of the story will unfold as to how this piece of writing came to be. So Aaron is my only child. He was my only son. Um, he was born uh, on June 27, 1978 in a wonderful little village called Verona, Ontario, Canada. I'm always amused um, when people 
tell when people in the U.S. say, and this is Heather Cook from Canada. Uh, Canada is a much bigger country than uh, a lot of people think it is. But uh, we, Erin was born in Verona, Ontario, Canada. Erin left us at 42 years of age. His life was was good. His life was full of happiness and joy. He lived um, fully and surrounded by a lot of love. Um, many people, as Aaron was growing up, my siblings included, would often talk about how, quote, spoiled Aaron was. And yet it never felt like Aaron was that kind of person at all. He, um, he was from the get-go uh, full of imagination. He was forward thinking. He loved being an only child, which is something I've always chuckled at. And we've had many jokes over from the time Aaron could talk at about three. Uh, he started to inform me that he did not want siblings. And this wasn't something we were triggering, triggering, triggering. Uh, it was just something that he shared with us. He would often see friends having uh, siblings and he'd say, mommy, mommy, daddy, I really, I really don't want a sibling. And so it actually became a bit of a family joke. He never had a sibling um, and he loved that. So um, he loved not only was he into imagination and fantasy and, you know, everything that seemed not to be, um, you know, the here and now. He one of his favorite movies was The Princess Bride. He watched that over and over and over again. Um, he his his the books that he loved the most uh, were all about you know Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and um he read a lot he he was a a child who was friendly and outgoing on the one hand and yet he loved his own company and that was something from the from early early days that we saw his father and I um were um part of um a christian community in verona uh, my own father, um, who passed away <laughs> a few years ago and lived to be nearly 97, was an evangelical minister. Uh, and so my own upbringing, and my father was also a very charismatic evangelical minister. So my own upbringing was, was, um, I would describe it as fundamental Christian. And my Aaron's father, um, uh, also was from the faith. And we, um, I, I had a bit of a rebellious streak in me and had actually left the community and lived out on my own at a very young age and then came back into the community realizing that, um, not being part of structure and getting good education, um, was going to lead me down paths I really didn't want to go. But I also, in that time away, um, when I came back into the community, I, I really, had begun to recognize that the the box of the fundamental evangelical Christian community wasn't necessarily for me. Um, however, I, uh, Aaron's dad and I did meet. He was what I call a good Christian boy, and um, we um, we married uh, after a couple years. And Aaron was born 
shortly after that. From the get-go, um, I recognized that I didn't fit. And so although we had a beautiful home and we had all kinds of friends and support around us, the marriage never was was um was never it never felt complete and so um although we stayed in verona and my ex-husband aaron's father traveled a lot um i realized pretty quickly that um that there was me to move on and I fought that, and I fought that for years. And Aaron was always very central to why I felt the need to stay. And he loved his friends. He loved his social community. My parents lived in the area. Uh, Aaron's father's parents, Clauston's parents, lived in the area. And we did all of those kinds of what looked like good family, friendship, um trips and social activities and church activities and I just couldn't find happiness or peace there uh, except in Aaron and so I stayed and as Aaron grew up and you know headed toward high school and became more independent I realized more and more that when Aaron left, I probably needed to move on. So I did. When Aaron started university, I made the tough decision that I had to walk away from the community, the church, and our, our beautiful home on the lake. Uh, but prior to that, Aaron and I and his father had had many conversations around this struggle. So it was not a big surprise to Aaron. Um, and he was able to be both supportive to his mother and his father. Through all of this, a very interesting relationship began to develop um, with, with Aaron and myself. And I always felt like I grew up with Aaron. I was only 22 when I became pregnant. And then with all these changes, um, it, it, I, I, I felt, I literally felt like we were growing up together. And um, he was, he went through a tough time. He, he, Aaron went to university. We lived close to a, 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 we lived close to, and now I live within Kingston, Ontario, which is a university town. And I had worked at the university from the time uh, Aaron was three years old. And I was fully immersed in it. Aaron's father had gone to the same university. And so Aaron made the decision, even though I'd hoped he would move further from home, um, he made the decision to go to Queens as well. And his father was very pleased about that. And I felt that if that was his decision, it was a good one for him. Prior to that, he had actually been out traveling with a friend uh, for about four months and had done the usual between uh, high school and university uh, half a gap year and had a wonderful time out there. He loved to travel. And Aaron's dream actually was to become an English lit professor and to write. That was his dream from the time he was very, very young. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way for him or fortunately. Um, 
But when he came to Queens, that was when our marriage broke down and I moved into the city. Aaron's father quickly moved away from Verona and went to Toronto. And um, we, we as a threesome never lost that connection. So that was very healthy for Aaron and, and also healthy for his father and me. His father ultimately moved into a new relationship um, a, uh, with another uh, woman. Uh, her name is Nancy, and she's a good Christian woman. She very much embraces the Christian faith, and that was good for Clauston. And he landed on his feet and has subsequently had a good, happy marriage. I um, ha- moved into a relationship with my current husband. His name is Bill. And Bill and I worked together at Queens. He had come out of Toronto. He's older than me. He had been a friend of mine for many years. And amazingly enough, the relationship, which I had always thought was just friendship, quickly turned to more than that after I had left my marriage. And he his. And Bill and I have now been together for 24 years. During that period of time, Aaron went through his own hiccups. Obviously, um, starting university, parents have separated, family home has has now been put on the market. And he was angry, and rightly so. And yet, uh, part of the agreement was that both his father and I would continue to support him fully, both in, <laughs> financially, but also emotionally. Um, Aaron always was closer to me. Uh, his father traveled a lot. And so he and I uh, continued while I was in Kingston now and he at Queens, I continued to make all kinds of efforts to stay in his life and help him through the university years as much as I could. Um, A moment where I really felt that our relationship started to shift and change was um, uh, Aaron was probably in second year university and um, it was at least second year. And I, I was seeing him fairly regularly. And and yet there was still a lot of anger in him. And I picked him up, taking him out to dinner one night and he wasn't talking um, and he wasn't conversing. And I was getting one word lines and sentences. And and I had actually started to see a therapist around my relationship and rebuilding it with him and and, and helping him recognize, you know, um, um, that I was hurting too and that all I wanted to do was to ensure that our relationship kept moving forward. And it was this night where there were very little conversation and he went to get out of the car and this was uh, a moment I'll never forget. And I said, Aaron, he said, what mom? And I said, hey, I'm trying to figure out why you keep taking me up on my offers to go out to dinner with me. And then saying nothing and giving nothing back. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, I go with you because I'm hungry. And that's the only reason. And it was in that moment we both burst out laughing. And that was just such a precious moment because it was him beginning to really just be Aaron with me and me being able to respond to it. Ultimately, Shortly after that, I informed him that I was seeing someone trying to 
to a better understand um, how this relationship would unfold for us, um, knowing I couldn't go back into the marriage, but needing to be a mother to him and have a relationship that was now shifting and changing. And it was when I told him that, when I told him that I was seeking help, that he got it and it began to change because that's who he was. He was so full of heart and he recognized in himself, it's time for me to put the weapons down. You know, this is, this is the way it is. And so, um, yeah, that was, that's a little bit of him as a young boy and, and the beginning of how our relationship shifted and changed. Ultimately, Aaron, um, uh, went through some struggles. He finished his degree. He didn't, he didn't have the marks he'd hoped to have. So he wasn't able to think about going on and doing a master's and at right away. And so, he began looking around for some work and he, and he struggled and he ultimately um, got a position um, with a company, an outsourcing company and a hospital that his father was connected to. And that was good. That was good for him, but it certainly wasn't his dream and it wasn't his dream job, but he was a really hard worker and he was always incredibly loyal. And so he stuck with it and he was lonely because he had not been dating. He'd had a very serious, couple of very serious relationships um, through high school, but nothing through university. And I, he was really struggling with that. And um, he, one day he heard that there was another manager down at Brockville who he, um, female, who he had heard was, a good person to work with and he decided that he was going to call her up and they were going to try to share some some staffing and that was Cynthia his wife and he went down to Brockville to have this discussion with her and uh, as I often say the rest is history Aaron and Cynthia clicked almost instantly and uh, I he came he came to visit me about two or three days after they had been spending an amazing amount of time together. And he came in and I knew there was a shift change in. It was just instant. And he said, Mom, I found her. And it was so special because that's how we were. And that's how our relationship continued to be from all the way through until he left us. It was authentic. It was real. Uh, it was honest. It was open. Uh, we didn't, um, we didn't, we didn't struggle in it. We, we just, we would say what we needed to say to each other. We would share the deep moments. We would, um, talk about struggles. Um, we would talk about joy. And as he and Cynthia became a couple and uh, they moved, you know, in together and then bought a house together and we could see this was going somewhere. He he would always bring me the 
the good news. And when he was struggling with the relationship, he would call me up and say, hey, could I talk to you about this? I'm looking for an opinion. Doesn't mean I'm going to take it. <laughs> anyway, I, I, they, Cynthia and Aaron were married in 2006. And it was such a joyous occasion. Uh, we, I look back on those moments. I have pictures around the house. And it was just good. They, um, they were blessed not, not only with a lot of good people around them. Cynthia's parents are wonderful human beings from a town called Bathurst, New Brunswick. And, uh, they totally support their daughter and are there for her. Uh, but Aaron had Claston and Nancy and Bill and me. And so there were three sets of parents who were there in different ways and different roles supporting Aaron and Cynthia. Aaron never wanted children. That was from the get-go. He wanted to be this English lit professor, which didn't happen. He wanted to be a writer, which he had the capacity to do, but it never, he never lived long enough to see it realized, unfortunately. Although anyone and everyone that read any piece of uh, work that he wrote, um, would comment so often about his incredibly unique writing skill or writing style. However, um, Cynthia wanted children and Oliver and Avery were born. At first, Aaron consented to Oliver uh, and Oliver came along and we were, we were there. I sat in the waiting room with Cynthia's father and while her mom was in the birthing room with Aaron and Cynthia. Uh, when Oliver was born early morning, uh, I will again never forget the moment when Aaron came out of the birthing room, came toward me. I stood up. He put his great big arms around me. He hugged me and he said, Mom, it's a boy. And that hug and those moments, I mean, I have so many of them, Mark, I could go on and on and on, but I don't think that's what, what this interview is all about. Well, it's important um, to share some of those, and I thank you. Yeah. Okay. So we move on, and Oliver and Avery are part of all of our lives. And one of the things that was so important to Aaron and to Cynthia was that we be family, and we... um Whenever there were birthdays, celebrations, um, moments of sorrow, um, we shared them. Aaron, from, from the very beginning, always felt he had one mother and one father, and that Bill and Nancy were, <laughs> um, were initially, you know, um, dads. Dad's wife and mom's husband, but ultimately, as time unfolded, both Nancy and Bill became very important to Aaron and Cynthia and to Oliver and Avery. And Aaron always said, I only have one mom, I only have one dad, but you are all grandparents to Oliver and Avery, and I want you all to be actively involved in their lives, and we all were. And that, I think, Mark, is one of the reasons why when Aaron's diagnosis came along on February 28, 2019. We, as a an extended family, were able to 
communicate again honestly and authentically and keep the focus on Aaron and Cynthia and what was happening there and be able to, I, I often use the phrase, um, um, circle the wagon so that we could, we could support the journey that none of us had ever imagined or anticipated Aaron was going to be going on. So this story that is just factual to what transpired the last weekend of Aaron's life um, came about in the way it did because we all had one purpose and that was firstly to help Aaron to hopefully heal and be able to stay with us but then to ultimately recognize that was not going to happen and to honor his wishes to to when there was no hope left to die on his terms because of a focus that was purely his and that was to ensure that his boys could remember their father in a way that showed them how to live and die with with courage and love and and just a full understanding that this is the reality of life and death so um yeah that was that was so important to Aaron. Um, and therefore that became so important to us. And so the story of his last weekend literally comes up and out of his wish, his need to, to let go if he had to on his terms. And that's what he did. So help me a bit here. I'm looking for where I should go from here. Um, I can talk about the journey from February the 28th, 2019 in the first year and how we walked with Aaron in hope. And then as we recognized that that hope was slipping away, how we all had to shift gears and move to another place. Well, we can we can we can get to that as we go along with the show, but maybe you might want to speak to uh, some of the feedback you already gotten from from the writing and all, because I even read some of the comments that was on my my journal, and I'm sure you've heard from other people as well uh, in person and on the internet, and, and what mm-hmm. impact it you know it had for them because. I think in the end, for for everyone involved in listening on this show, that somebody dying on their own terms with with dignity is something that we all can appreciate, especially if you strip all the other silliness that sometimes people will try to put on it, rather just leaving it Mm -hmm. as as it is. And when you look at it that way and you you feel it that way and you you hear it that way, it it becomes more more humane for people. Rather than them getting some some uh, idea that they might have gotten from a 
a newspaper or maybe a, a, mm-hmm. a church bulletin or something because we we have to as custodians of mm-hmm. of our own lives we have to do our best to to make our own terms and if we could do that right. why why not so maybe you could speak a little yeah. bit on that first yeah okay so um i yes um so when aaron was diagnosed I want to give a little bit of background to where he was in his life at that point in time, because it, it really impacted the last 18 months that we had with him. When Aaron was diagnosed, he was 40. And he had been working at Queen's University, um, and he had been in a position. Uh, the position was called Sustainability Manager, Queen's University. And so... What his role was, was, as we are also aware of environmental issues, positions have been coming up within all organizations about how we can better serve the environment from a sustainability perspective in every organization. And so he when he had applied for this job and he had been in the job for um, about 10 years, when he applied for the job, he had been working as a manager within physical plant at Queens, um, supervising a team. And he was becoming quite passionate about the environment and environmental issues. And so when this job opened up, even though he did not have the educational background because he did not have a degree in environmental studies. Um, the the uh, team saw that he had a real uh, passion for for this. And Aaron also was an incredibly an incredibly um, uh, I want to say charismatic, but that that's too strong. People were drawn to Aaron, and he never recognized that in himself. That when he got up and spoke the room would would be quiet he had also had an incredibly uh, wonderful uh, way of working with university students he respected them he had been one he understood them he respected them he he was able to pull team together and 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 get people enthusiastic about um these very important issues and so he worked a lot because there was no budget for sustainability at Queens, as is often the case in many universities. So he'd worked really, really hard at this job. And I had been encouraging him uh, to to head back and get a master's. And he struggled over it. And he struggled over it because he didn't have he didn't think he could do it. He had lost confidence. He'd always done very, very well uh, academically. And then in his last couple of years of university, Nuts. I mean, he did he did well, but he was not at the top of his class, and he was used to that. And so he struggled with whether or not he could actually do it. And so I encouraged him to apply part time. And I was not the only one encouraging him, but he came to me quite often, and we would talk about it. And he said, "I really do need to go on beyond this position." And so um, he he ultimately applied. For a master's, and, and it's a master's of public administration focusing on environmental issues, and he was accepted into the program. And so he was still working full time, 
And he had a couple of job offers come at him. And he purposely turned them down because he wanted to stay focused on his studies and to offer something back to Queens. Unfortunately, what happened was that he finished. Well, the fortunate part is that he ended up graduating May 2018 at the top of his class. Uh, and he loved getting that degree. And he worked so hard at it. And he did so well. We were all so happy to celebrate that with him and so proud of him. But at the same time, something political was going on within the university. We'll not bore you with the details, but Aaron was beginning to look beyond Queens because he felt that he had got he, he was getting sidebarred and he had applied for a research job with the federal government. And he'd also applied for a couple other jobs and he was offered two other jobs. He turned them down because they were going to take him away from the Kingston area. But he was extremely interested in this other position that would have been out of the federal government working with the sustainability team, federal government. And it was a very good job. He was on, he had gone for second interview and it was now a matter of a process. Now we are now talking, we've moved to the fall and now around October, November. It was very exciting because the family would be moving to Ottawa, which is just down the road from here. And um, it, it, my daughter-in-law would have easily picked up. She's a registered nurse and would have picked up a really good position there. And the family was on the move. And it was after the second interview that Aaron came home and called me and talked to me about it and said, Mom, I'm so excited about this. This is, this is going to happen and this is great for us. And they were looking at houses, et cetera. And he wasn't feeling 100%. So he thought to himself, you know, I need to go in for a physical because I want to make sure I'm, you know, I'm good to go. And that was the beginning. He went in for a physical and some of the blood work was off. And our family doctor asked for Aaron to come back in and have the blood work redone. And he did. And we're now into December. And there were iron levels that were too low. And so our family doctor booked a colonoscopy for Aaron. And that Christmas, 2018, Aaron began to say, I'm worried that something's wrong. Now, the amazing part to this story is that the position in Ottawa would not be offered until March. Aaron had been at Queens for a long period of time. He had great life insurance. We were here in town. The children had not made the move. He had not cut that tie. Queens has a phenomenal long-term disability plan. And Aaron didn't get his colonoscopy until February the 28th, 2019. And that morning, we went, we picked up the boys, Oliver and Avery, to take, get them ready to go to school because Cynthia was going with Aaron for the colonoscopy. And I still remember the feeling I had that something wasn't quite right. The kids were dropped off at school and I had gone on to work myself and the call came and Aaron said, Mom, We've got bad news, he said. And again, my son's wry sense of humor. He said they did the colonoscopy uh, and he said they stopped. 
And they said, okay, we're not going any further. And they took us to the grieving room and we knew something was wrong. He said, you don't go into the grieving room after a colonoscopy. And so they found a large mass at the upper part of his colon. So, Mark, I tell you all this because Aaron is no longer with us. But for the 18 months that he fought for his life, he had not made the move. So we were here to be able to support him and family. He had not handed in his resignation, so he had long-term disability. His life insurance was fully intact. His pension was fully intact. He was here in a hospital that we all know and know the oncologists and so was getting good, um, good uh, very good um, uh, special attention. And it could have gone the other way. So these are one of these moments that we hold on to. And so one of these times where you go, wow. You know, um, anyway, that was the beginning. And when the news came, we, he was originally told that not only was it in the upper colon, but they were doing CAT scans and they believed that it was in some of his lymph nodes and therefore it was stage three. Within two weeks, they had run more tests and they had called Aaron and Cynthia back in. And they said, we are truly sorry, but this isn't just stage three. This is actually stage four. It's in your liver. However, you are 40 years old. And we think that if we can go in and do radical surgery, we are going to buy you time. When Aaron got, when Aaron had that second uh, consult and he called me, uh, on my phone, I was walking again to work. And this is, this is where oh, we began to really, um, fully understand how much he was having to absorb and process and that he had already started to do it. I was walking and of course I was working really hard at not breaking down and crying and because Aaron never liked drama. And I said to him, Aaron, do you know what you need from me? And he said, actually, Mom, I do. I've been thinking about this. And there are three things I need from you. I need you to stay well. I need you to stay strong. And I need you not to hover. <laughs> well, those three words were my mantra for all of 2019 and into the beginning of 2020 when we thought Aaron was going to ha was going to be okay. And I go back to those three words and I think of the wisdom of what he was needing from me. And that became something that was incredibly important to me to listen to him, to pay attention to what he was asking for. Because he knew what he needed from the get-go. So Aaron started the, um, we started into the treatments. He, the first was that they were going to go in and remove at least a third of his upper colon, if not more. They had, were going to attempt to um, cut a portion of his liver. And they were going to remove as many lymph nodes as they could possibly get at. That was the plan of action. 
They were going to do this, and then they were going to hit him with radical chemotherapy. They felt that with this plan in place, they could buy Aaron upwards of five, maybe seven years. And uh, hope, of course, always is that research is being done and that something else would come along or that he would get really lucky and it would his cancer would go into remission. So that's how we started into 2019. And as his mother, I lived in hope with him. That was that was my goal. That was my role. That was everything I, I could give him. And I gave it to him in spades. Uh, Cynthia's parents came and looked after the children for each of Aaron's surgeries and procedures. And I was given the honor. And I am so, I'm so thankful for that honor where I was allowed every night that Aaron was in hospital throughout that period of time to stay with him. I had asked Cynthia if that would be okay, and she thanked me profusely and said, Heather, if you can do the night shift, I will do the day shift, and then I'll be able to still be there for the boys. Well, Mark, I cannot begin to tell you about the wonderful moments, the wonderful conversations, the incredibly tough, painful nights, and it, and 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 that Aaron had, and that I was able, as his mother, to hold his hand, to stroke his back, to put cold claws on him, and to be able to give him that, because that's what he needed from me in 2019. Those nights. I honestly now look back and go, I don't know how we did that, <laughs> but we did. And we did it with this incredible, it was like we were just team. And I hold on to every single moment of those nights. Um, I remember one night in particular where he was extremely distressed and in incredible pain. And it was partly coming off some of the meds. Um, and he felt like he just literally couldn't stay in his own skin. And he was, he said to me, mom, I, I, I just, I can't, I don't know what to do. I just, I, I, I can't even give you words to explain what I'm feeling. And that night it was just cold claws on his back and stroking him and calming him. There is no greater gift in the world as a parent, to be able to do that for your child, no matter what age they are. Unfortunately, there were many things that went wrong in Aaron's surgeries and procedures. And ultimately, they weren't able to do the, um, the liver because Aaron had a deformed liver that nobody discovered until we started down this cancer path. And the side of his liver that had cancer cells growing was this healthy side. And the other side of his liver had never developed properly. So they weren't able to do the procedure of, of 
trying to do regrowth. But they still attempted um, uh, 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 adjusting or cutting a vessel to try to get some extra blood flow onto the, the healthier side. What happened is Aaron developed a massive blood clot. And that literally, that blood clot was the beginning of what ultimately took, took him away from us. I want to back up a bit if I can. Sure. And I want to talk about um, Aaron's now had two procedures, two major surgeries, and we are now into um, early summer 2019. And he and I were having, we're spending as much time as we could together and he would allow me without me hovering and because these were the moments when he was feeling better and healthier again and he came back to the house after we'd had lunch together and it was just one of our Indian food lunches he loved East Indian food and he said mom I have to talk to you about something and he said I need you to hear me through he said we all hope then I'm going to stay with my family, with all of you, for at least another five years. But we don't know that for sure. And because we don't know that, I have begun to investigate what in Canada is called a program that is called Dying with Dignity. It is assisted dying. It is called assisted dying in Canada. And he said, I know that there is more um, legislation that hasn't yet been passed. But what I have looked at with regard to, to this assisted dying program is that if I am unconscious, I may not be able to trigger it. And mom. I know you don't want to have this conversation with me, but here's the thing. If I am not going to make it, I know in my heart of hearts that for Oliver and Avery, I cannot and I will not let my boys go through the pain and the sorrow of watching my body and my brain disintegrate before their eyes. I cannot do that to them. If I have to leave them, I need to be able to leave them with them knowing that daddy is okay. Now that was July of 2019. We had that conversation. And I said, so Aaron, you're telling me this, why? And he said, because mom, I know you well enough to know that if I ask this of you, and I can't trigger it myself, you will jump through all the hoops out there to ensure it happens for me. That's what I'm asking of you today. And so from July 2019, I, I honored Aaron with, with my full support that if that is where we landed, I would be there supporting him 100%. Not because of any selfish reasons on his part, but for exactly the opposite reason, Mark. 
that Aaron was being selfless in this. Okay. 2019, the fall, there was more surgery. They were able to get some of the spots off the liver. They had hope again, and Aaron headed into chemo. He had 13 chemo treatments. Once again, I was able, along with his father now, who had become much more involved in the whole process of what was unfolding, to go with Aaron to those chemo treatments. And some of the best conversations Aaron and I have ever had in our life happened while he sat in the chemo chair because we had upwards of two to three hours and we talked about anything and everything. And through what we had been through earlier through the year, there were just no, there were no boundaries. (laughs) Uh, There was just this love. I just, I, It was so unconditional, and it flowed both ways. And the fall of 2019, Aaron and I had probably some of the best moments of our life together. Not just through the chemo treatments, but we did things together. Cynthia, being the nurse that she was, recognizing all the risks that he was up against, recognizing the odds... She opened the doors to him um, um, going off on little trips, um, spending time with his dad in Toronto, spending time with me, just, you know, traveling. We would go over to Prince Edward County, which is a special place for us. And um, it was just, it was just, they were magical. They were literally magical days and moments. He was having them with the kids. He was having them with Cynthia. He was having them with all of us. We had hope, and we headed into 2020, January 1, 2020. Aaron had some complications in December. He was getting close to the end of his chemo, and it was wearing on him, but it was also, they felt, helping him to beat this. And so at Christmas, he had had to stall one of the chemo treatments, and he made the decision to stall for two weeks so that he could have a full-blown happy Christmas with us and and his sons. And that was the first clue that he ever shared with me that he didn't think he was going to be around for long. He took me aside in early December and said, Mom, we're going overboard with the kids for Christmas. The year that they've had has been hell, and I want them to just be fully spoiled. And we're going for the gold on this Christmas. And he said, I don't know if there will be more for me. That was the first I heard those words from him. Well, i got to tell you, Mark, we had one amazing Christmas. (laughs) It was really special. And we were all together. And Aaron led a lot of the agenda. And it was just great. My husband and I had decided that we needed a break. We had been full tilt all year, and I had been working alongside of this going on. And so we booked a cruise for, after just after consulting with Aaron, we booked a cruise. And Aaron said, go. I want you to go. You need this break. Mom, Bill, go. Have a good time. So the last chemo I went to with him was December the 31st, 2019. 
and there were some complications on that chemo again. And um, it was a tricky one. However, we got up and over it, and Bill and I headed out for a 10-day cruise to through the Panama Canal. Talked to Aaron and the boys and Cynthia almost every day, and he was headed into his last chemo, and he was joyous and happy and full of hope. And Bill and I um, had, long story short, the four of us had shared a cottage together. And when Aaron got so sick, we made the decision that we needed to let the cottage go. It was costly. Bill and I were carrying most of the costs because Aaron and Cynthia didn't have the money um, uh, available given his situation. And we all agreed we needed to put the cottage on the market, and it had sold that fall. That was our first what we would call loss because Aaron and I loved that cottage. (laughs) However, that was nothing compared to everything else that came at us. Um, Anyway, he... We took the proceeds and we gave most of it back to Aaron and Cynthia to support them through his illness. And then we set aside some funds and we said, we want to go on a trip with you guys this winter. Where do you want to go? And right away, my daughter-in-law is not a traveler. Aaron was right away. It was, we want to go to Disneyland with the kids. Could we book a trip to Disneyland? And so we were just like, yep. That's where we're going. And so that was booked for February. Aaron was going to be done his chemo by the time we got home from our our trip out. Um, There was a a few weeks in between. And then Aaron and Cynthia were driving down to Florida. And we were were flying with Oliver and Davery. And my brother and sister-in-law had planned to join us and did join us. (laughs) So in February of 2020, off we all headed in various different uh, cars, so sort of like the planes, trains, and automobiles story. <laughs> and uh, we had the most wonderful trip with the boys. Uh, we flew with them, and um, Aaron and Cynthia had this drive down together, which they desperately needed. My brother and sister-in-law went through a snowstorm. Just about didn't make it, but they did. And for 10 days... And the end of February, because we all arrived, um, it was late February. We had this home that we booked. We all stayed together in the home. Aaron led <laughs> led us all through Magic Kingdom and Universal Studios and Harry Potter Land and Star Wars, and we never stopped. And I could write a book on those 10 days we had together because they were human. And you put that many people together and you put family together and you have little moments that are hiccups and all of that. But every every hiccup had humor in it. Every day was so full we would fall into bed so exhausted at night. I had moments with Aaron out by the pool where he and I were drinking coffee and Cynthia would join us or Bill would join us or one of the kids would come by And it was just so beautiful. We, I mean, I could go on about that, but I won't. Aaron drove, we had a van, and we drove in the van every day to whichever park we were going to. And he, the jokes that would fly in that van would just blow you away. Like, really, they were just so amazing. (laughs) And, and, 
Aaron couldn't have been happier, although he was hurting and he was having some pain. But my brother, who is drives a Harley and is a bike guy, he and Aaron went on every scary ride you could possibly imagine. And I can remember standing out, out pacing on one of the roller coasters that they went on. And I was so terrified because I was so worried about Aaron. Everybody else is like really chilling and like, oh, there's grandma once again fussing. And I was pacing back and forth. And Aaron and my brother, his name is Philip, came off this ride. And Aaron was buckled over with laughter and my brother looked like he was going to pass out and i'm thinking yeah i'm fussing over the wrong guy (laughs) we came home we came home and we were full of such happiness and the standard joke um on that trip was crispy creams and Mark, if you are an american you know about crispy cream donuts Uh, right yeah they're big here in the south in the south here yeah, yeah. Well, my son could, I can. I cannot tell you how many Krispy Kreme donuts he ate. I mean, it was, he had the Krispy Kreme t-shirt. He had the, he, they, it was all about Krispy Kreme donuts. And um, it, 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 my my daughter-in-law has taken his Krispy Kreme t- t-shirts and turned them into pillows for the boys. That's how much we all embrace Krispy Kremes and Aaron and, and, and magic. We arrived home a day and a half ahead of Aaron and Cynthia and flew into Toronto. Things were getting a little weird because COVID was hitting. Aaron and Cynthia drove in a day and a half later. It was March break for the kids heading into March break. And Aaron was going to go spend the week with his father and the boys in Toronto. And his father had begun to plan a trip with Aaron. They were going to do... um, a river cruise flying into uh, Switzerland, ending up in um, Amsterdam. And they had been booking and planning this trip all winter. His father was so excited about this trip. And Aaron had been buying things when we were in Florida in preparation for his trip. We got home and I... And we, Aaron and Cynthia drove in and bringing all their luggage in. And we did the typical exchange that we do. And I said, hey, I'll see you in a few days. And he said, yep, I'll be back. And that was the last time I saw him, physically saw him, until early April because of COVID. We all went into lockdown two days later. Aaron had a CAT scan booked, his first CAT scan for early April. And by this point, COVID was so rampant here and the fear was so heightened that Cynthia could not go in with him. They were shutting down our hospitals. And the fact that he actually had the CAT scan was kind of amazing. He had the CAT scan and Oliver's birthday was April 20th. And we saw them, we drove over to their house and it was probably around the April 10th or 11th. And we waved at them outside We were outside their house, them inside, because they were afraid to come near us. And we chatted a bit, and it was, I said, have you heard anything? And he said, no, no, I haven't. So we'd made a plan, Oliver's birthday, our oldest grandson's 11th birthday, was, um, was April 20th. And we'd made a plan that we were going to do a party outside, just socially distanced in the yard with bringing presents, and I would 
deliver a cake. The morning of April 20th, I called Oliver, my grandson, to wish him happy birthday to tell him we were on our way over. And he said, oh, Grandma, he said, thank you, and, you know, the usual. And then he said, Daddy isn't here right now. And I said, oh, why is that, Oliver? And he said, oh, don't worry. There's no big deal. It's just that Daddy had to go in and give some more blood today. And Mark, I got to tell you, it was like I had been a hit over the head. I knew. And I said to Oliver, I said, well, could you just have Daddy give me a quick call when he gets in? When the phone rang half an hour later, Aaron was upstairs in his bedroom with the door closed. And he was sobbing. He had been called in because the cancer was back with a vengeance. It was in his liver. It was in his lymph nodes. And it had moved to his lungs. And that was the beginning of the end for Aaron. He said to me, Mom, he said, it is Oliver's birthday and we will celebrate. And you have got to get your act together and get over here because we are going to have a socially distanced party for Oliver. And we will not be telling the boys today because I don't want Oliver ever to remember that daddy found out that he's terminal on Oliver's birthday. And that was Aaron in a nutshell from that moment forward. The focus shifted and changed 100% to how do I buy time to stay here? How do I give myself completely to this family? And how do I process that I am dying and be here for these boys 100%. And Mark, that's what he pulled off. And it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal to watch Aaron from that moment forward. But it was actually heartbreaking for me because, and this is where I become a little selfish, from that moment on, Aaron began to shift, Aaron's needs began to shift and change because he knew he was going to leave us. And he had to, and he was angry. And he was like, how do I do this? Like, how do I go from hope to I'm dying and I'm leaving everything I love? Okay. And one of the first things he had to do was to find the energy to be there for Oliver and Avery and Cynthia and to, to find the strength to begin to let go. And so one of the very first conversations that he and I had alone was a few days after Oliver's birthday, and he came and we did a socially distanced walk. And again, Aaron was processing. And he said to me, Mom, you have always been there for me. Through everything we've had in life, you've been there for me. So 
you've also tried to fix everything for me. And I have leaned into that fully. And some people would say, you know, you probably shouldn't have done that to your mom. But he said, you and I knew that's how it worked. You can't fix this, mom. And I haven't got in my, in my, in my, in my, I haven't got capacity to focus on what this is going to mean to you. Because I have to stay focused on what this is going to mean to Oliver and Avery and Cynthia. And I have to be able to deal with it as well. I have to be able to deal with dying. So, Mom, I'm sorry. But we have to start letting go. And, Mark, I cannot tell you how hard and yet how right, how hard it was for me. And yet how right it was that that's what he requested of me. So, by the time we, I'm jumping ahead now, by the time we got to this last weekend that I have told the story about, there was so much more that unfolded from April 20th until September 13th. Aaron ended up in ICU in July, just about died. He had internal bleeding. Uh, the oncologist messed up with his chemo treatments and didn't get them started soon enough. We might have been able to buy a bit more time. The oncologist also screwed up with regard to not recognizing the internal bleed, and he kept sending him back home. The, uh, the pain became excruciating for Aaron, and he absolutely refused to go on morphine or anything that would be mind-bending because he was not going to quit being there for his boys, who were now being homeschooled, and he did that all the way through the spring and even into the early fall, into even into that first week in September. He was trying to build the children a pool because he wanted to give them one last gift because he wanted to get the focus off of him. He was going in for these chemo treatments that were just taking him down like you cannot believe. And yet he, and yet when he could, at every time, at every juncture that he could, he was calling me, FaceTiming me. He'd go behind closed doors and he would talk to me about letting go wouldn't be so hard. Because the pain was so excruciating. And that if this is what he had to live with, he understood why people died. He would go on little kicks where he'd go, Mom, I have to have fruit salad. And so I would make fruit salad for about four days in a row. <laughs> he would bring the boys over here when he was, when he could. And we had one very intimate conversation in the backyard in July uh, around beliefs and fear of dying. And I asked him then, because uh, I would have done anything 
I said to him, Aaron, are you afraid? And he said, no, I'm not afraid. And it was in that conversation where he said, my life has been so good, mom. My life has been everything. I've had tough time. I've had rough time. But it has been such a good life. I just don't want to leave it yet. But he said, am I afraid of the unknown? No, I'm not. And so I said, because obviously, as I talked about earlier in the interview, Aaron had grown up in a faith-based home. Aaron had left it. And Aaron didn't believe, his belief system was he didn't think there was anything beyond. And that's where he stayed, and he never moved from that position. But that day... In July, in our backyard, I said to him, you know, Aaron, if you need to shift away from this, or if you need to shift, just tell me what. No, let's go there. And he, and he looked at me right in the eye, and he said, oh, Mom, that's the one thing I don't need to do. I am really at peace with this. And then he smiled with that wonderful smile of his, and he said, but, Mom, if there is something out there, if there is something beyond that nobody can come back and tell us, and that's the beauty of people believing whatever they want to believe and, you know, wanting everybody else to believe it. If there really is something out there, I'm promising you one thing. I am going to come back and haunt you constantly. And I smiled and he smiled and I said, I'm going to hold you to that, Aaron. That's who he was. We talked that day again about the assisted dying and how everything was moving into place. We talked about how he had no longer had future. And I am a planner and Aaron was a planner. And we talked about how it was so hard for me to try to stop planning. And that he needed me to because he couldn't and he had to stay in the moment. And so we talked about how we could be in the moment and how I could support that. And he gave me good tips. And I tried really hard to live into that every time I saw him. He was amazing. And so when he ended up in ICU in, in July, late July, and they couldn't find the internal bleed that had started, and they told him that they wanted to go in and do some exploratory um, procedure, he challenged them 100%, and he said, if you go in and you do exploratory procedure, do you promise me you'll find the bleed and that you will be able to do something for me and they said no we cannot promise you that and he said to them then we're not going in because I have to preserve my energy and my strength to stay here in as good health as I can hold on to as long as I can
in August. So what he did was he checked himself out of ICU during that time. Cynthia had managed to slip into the hospital and be with him for the two days that he was in. And I, I, Bill and I were with the boys. When he came home from that, he began the procedure of assisted dying and the uh, legal forms that have to be signed. I still remember him driving in the right. Cynthia was driving, thank goodness, when he checked himself out of ICU. And he uh, drove into the driveway. They drove into the driveway, and he was so weak. But they had managed to get the internal bleed slowed down, and they had told him he was moving to palliative, and that he would, they would, he would, he would get, um, he would get transfusions, as long as they could give them to him. And he, I remember him. He he got out of the car and he sat on the step with me, and we looked at each other. And the kids were excited and they hugged him and, you know, we then had some some quiet moments and he said, you know, it's coming soon. And I said, yes, I do. But I said, Aaron, you need to do everything you can that you possibly can to hold on as long as you can. And whatever that is, you know, if it's helpful, you need to do it. And he said, I will. But he said, Mom, we know where this is going to end and we have to start living that. And so we did. And he saw a few friends and he continued the palliative chemo. And we had rented a cottage which we had hoped he and Cynthia were going to be able to go away and enjoy that last week of August. And he so desperately wanted, he couldn't go for the week because he couldn't be away from the hospital for that long. But he so desperately wanted, I think, to please me. So he said, we're going to come out for a day. And they did. And he couldn't stay for the whole day because the pain was too much. But in his quiet way, he stayed as long as he could. And then he just said, we have to go home now. And they left. I knew it was coming, Mark. And as a mother, I had moments and my husband can uh, attest to them, where I would say, how can I be so angry at my dying son? And the anger in me was from being him needing to begin to, I say the word push me away, but that's too strong. But to help me not to want to be with him 24-7 and to recognize that he let me in when he could. And I was angry. But I now know, I know that he, what he did was absolutely right. So by the time we got to the September 12th weekend, <laughs> what allowed us to do what guided us to do what we needed to do was it Aaron's strength Aaron's love and Aaron's wisdom he helped all of us to get there as he was trying to get there himself I desperately wanted to help with funeral plans he wouldn't let me 
he said, no, mom, I need to do this. And then he told me, I thought a lot about this and my wish is that I do not want my ashes scattered. I want my ashes to remain with my family. I want Cynthia and the boys to have 50% of me. I want you, Mum, to have a quarter, and I want Dad to have the other quarter. I do not want you to scatter me. I want to remain in your homes living with you. So he does. The doctor that Aaron tapped into was a young man by the name of Cameron McLean. He's a family doc in Napanee. I have subsequently exchanged a correspondence with Cameron and his father, because his father also is a family doc out of London, Ontario, who also does assisted dying. Cameron would be about four years older than Aaron. Uh, so he's in his mid to late 40s. He does this out of total compassion. When Aaron filled in the forms in July, Cameron came to visit him for the first time just a few days after that. And I am so... I have the, Cameron touched Aaron's heart. Cameron got it. After that first interview, Cameron said, Aaron, I explained to him that the legislation in Canada at that point in time was that you had two options. You either set your, if you're terminally ill, and you have to jump through all kinds of legal hoops to determine you are, you can set your date and your time and then arrange for assisted dying to come in on that date and that time. But if you fell unconscious, you can't trigger it. And then we would have had to jump through some more hoops to make it happen. So the other uh, option which is what Aaron chose, was that you can call when you think you are ready. Unfortunately, normally, it could take up to 48 hours for things to be set up through the, through the, um, medical, the medical process. So Cameron and Aaron came up with this plan. Cameron said, I'm not going to do that to you, Aaron, because Aaron wasn't able to say, it will be this day at this time. Because Aaron said, I will not let go until I have to. And so they came up with this plan that Cameron gave Aaron his cell phone number and said to Aaron, I will come within a couple of hours. I'm giving you this because you need it. Cameron visited Aaron again, so they had two very confidential, very private sessions together in Aaron's home. The second one was in, in late August. 
What happened on the weekend that we lost Aaron is the internal bleed had never completely gone away, and it came back with a vengeance on Friday night. He had been in for his fifth chemo. There was a CAT scan had happened. He had had to cut his chemo in half because his body couldn't tolerate it, but the CAT scan had revealed that there was some shrinkage and that the tumors weren't growing. So we had hoped when he went in for his fifth chemo. I picked him up from his fifth chemo, and I will never forget him coming around because I couldn't go into hospital because of COVID. Coming around the corner, I was in the car, and he climbed into the car, and he turned to me, and what flashed through my brain so clearly, dead man walking. That was Wednesday. Aaron died Sunday night. He went home. And he just got weaker and weaker. We were with him again on the Friday. And I bought him his last gift. Because I was always buying him things. Because that's what I did. And it was a, a cushion to help him sit up more fully. Uh, so that he could read in bed. He started to use it Friday night. The bleeding started back on that Friday night. And my daughter-in-law called me Saturday morning. We'd been there. We had left. They didn't call us in the night. And she called me Saturday morning. And the rest is the story, Mark. The rest is to paper. Well, I I, I tell you, um, um, I, I, don't, I don't see even what you wrote, how it compares to, to, to that recounting. There's something spiritual, if not beyond biological in the mother's love that I don't know if we can ever capture, you know, in, in words on, on a page. Well, sorry. Um, I feel, so I have written, I want to talk a little bit about the writing and about my writing. If I could switch gears here for a moment. Sure. I've always enjoyed writing and I don't mean writing as in storytelling or or poetry or you know the novel i mean writing as in just writing i love to write my father was a preacher man my son loved to write we have the gift of writing in the family we have some members that do write and publish but i've always enjoyed writing and so my career has allowed me to do a lot of professional writing and it's been something that i i i i take I take pleasure in, but I'm not really creative in many other ways. And what I mean by that is I would love to sing, but oh my God, <laughs> not even the shower enjoys it. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I would love to paint, but I can't draw, let alone paint. I would love to, to create a, a song. Okay. I, I, I would love to knit. I would even love to be able to really enjoy baking. I can bake, but I hate it, okay? Or cooking. Hate it. I can do it. But there's no there's no creative energy in it for me, okay? I've always created at work. I've always worked hard. I, I, I do enjoy leading team, and I am good at it. I love bringing people together. 
I love a project and I love delivering and I love the energy that comes from that. I, I, I and I do it well. I have, I won't get into what I do, but I do that well. However, I have always dreamed of actually putting story to paper. From the moment Aaron left us, the need to write has been, hmm, I'm looking for words to describe that, that need, <laughs> that, that it, it was so powerful within me. But appreciate the fall. You know, you go into shock. You, you cope. You, you do it for all the right reasons and you, you, you just are driven to, at least I was in the first few months of the grieving process to just keep busy and keep moving and to walk and to cry and to let it out and to tell the story. And I'm an extrovert. You may have picked up on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it helps the show. To get it out. <laughs> It must, I must get it out. I, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so, I'm so thankful that that is my, that's my DNA. And therefore, I am, I joke about this, but it's honestly true. I mean, I was literally picking up friends on the street almost because we're in COVID and I've got to talk it out and I've got to cry it out and I've got to walk it out. So I had to find people to help me do that. <laughs> And I have a good circle. I have a very good circle. But I have I literally, my, my brother has teased me. I am the only person in the world that has found more new friends through COVID than anybody else. Okay. Uh, I've heard that before. And so I was constantly, <laughs> I was telling the story. I was telling it, right? So, you know, my friend would call and say, ready for a walk? Yes. And then away we'd go. And I'd be, I'd be I, I'd verbalizing it constantly, right? And I'm doing this over and over and over. And by Christmas, I'm just like exhausted. I'm exhausted from doing this. And anyone that has lost a child, those, a parent too, but a child is different. Those first holidays, and what the audience doesn't know is that I also lost my daughter-in-law and my two grandchildren back to Bathurst, New Brunswick, which is 1,000 miles down the road, okay, and COVID, and I, I literally had not seen them for seven and a half months, but we have just come back from Bathurst, by the way, Mark, I didn't tell you that, but we just had a week in Bathurst. Oh, okay, great. And it was, it was amazing. But, but you can appreciate, I'm now, we've gone through all this, it's Christmas, it's just like, let me breathe in, let me breathe out, let me get through. We move into January. January 1st, oh, I cannot tell you how horrible that day was, because you see, I can't carry Aaron into 2020. Not the living, breathing Aaron. The door closed on the living, breathing Aaron at the end of 2019 and I went out for a literally a walk and a cry 
we have a memorial tree for Aaron and we're also putting a bench at a spot on campus. And I walked there. It's a long walk in the freezing cold. And I sat there and I talked to him and I cried and I said, I, I can't lose you. And back comes this whole write the story, write the story. And I came home and I'm also very fortunate to have a wonderful psychiatrist walking beside me who is also a friend. And I had begun to see her on a weekly basis. And in my first session with her in the New Year's with Heather, write the story. And I went home and I kept avoiding it. About the middle of January, I woke up one morning and I went downstairs and I went to my computer and my desk and it started to pour out of me. And I sat sobbing and writing and writing and sobbing. And then I would go away from it and I would hand it to my wonderful husband, who I've not talked a lot about, but he is my rock. And I said, read this. And he would go away and he'd come back and he'd be, the tears would be flying. He goes, keep writing. And so that's how the story came out of me. It was over about a week and a half, period. And it just poured. It just, it just poured. I now know what it's like to paint a picture, to write a song, to create poetry. I know what that feels like because I created this for Aaron. I feel like I have been channeled. I feel, you know, I, I don't. I'm not into, oh, yes, I now believe in heaven and hell. It's none of that. But Aaron's energy is with us. It's with us. And I'm 100% committed to the belief this story is Aaron's legacy. Aaron couldn't write it, so I wrote it for him. Aaron can't tell it, so I'm telling it for him. It has legs, Mark, and it has gone from coast to coast. And I was mentioning to you earlier, it's, it's been published with what's called Dying with Dignity Canada. It, I keep getting feedback from people I don't know or do know who are just so moved by it. And, and every time I hear that, I, I know I did, I wrote it. I, I, I take credit for that. You don't ever want to have lived this, to write this. But Aaron's death, which comes to us all, and that is something that I live and breathe all the time now, Mark. It comes to us all. In his death, 
his legacy is one of we all go here we owe it to each other to share it this is how Aaron got there this is not for everybody but Aaron did this for all the right reasons and to have the to have this door open when it is needed is such a blessing Aaron's sons who I literally just came back from a week with and again we had this this time of healing his sons are going on not fearing death not angry at their father for you know for stuff he couldn't control by dying in this horrifically painful way in front of them these boys understand that death comes to us all but they are embracing life because they know it's a gift and their father showed them it short and every moment of it matters and so even in Aaron's dying every single second matters does that make sense it, it it certainly does to to me uh, i certainly uh can appreciate it i had something similar happen with my with my own father uh, not obviously the same circumstance but uh when i came back from the air force um he he had told me which he never told me in correspondence and remember this is before we had internet and email you have to actually write somebody and i'm in germany and he's yeah. in new jersey <laughs> And uh, he's like, uh, yeah, I've been fighting this cancer for a while right now, but I'm, I'm thinking about going in a different direction. I'm like, what, dire- what direction is that? You're going to go for the other hospital versus the hospital you've been going to? Is that the direction? No, he says, I, I don't want to do the chemo anymore. He goes, I don't really believe yeah. what they're selling me. And I, I feel from everybody else I've talked to, including a few of my friends that went through this, that I can have more of a quality of life if I simply stay away from it and just let it go on to its course. And whatever time I have is better. You know, and I, I try to persuade him otherwise, but he made the decision because it's his decision to make. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a sacrifice. And we had people from the family mean about it, saying things that are, you know, uncouth and maybe even um, simply, you know, inhuman to say. But nevertheless, uh, yeah. the experience that me and him had, the time that he gave me, because that's what he was doing. He was giving himself yeah. and giving me some extra time. We, we used it wisely, and later on I, I learned to accept it. But it took a while, uh, and it, it's a version of that because, you know, you don't have to take a chemo if you don't want to. My, my father was already well past it with the liver. He, he knew that was nothing that could be done. I mean, it wasn't even transport possible, you know, and that was a perfect match. It just wasn't yeah. possible. It was yeah. just too many other places. And um, so I have, I have a good idea about how people feel and, and how this is necessary. And I certainly un, understand that in the end, it, it's, it's a sacrifice of a person's time on earth so that, so, yeah. so that others around him can benefit more. 
can go on, can go on in without, can go on with hope. Okay, it can go on with hope. I have so many, um, and I'm just want, looking at my watch. I have so many different ways that I need to still tell this. You know, there's the whole communication piece that we had to all embrace. Open, honest, authentic communication. There's the sacrifices we all had to make. As a mother, I had to make sacrifices. As a parent, parenting is one of those funny things. It's, it's the greatest, it's the greatest honor, pleasure, responsibility in life. You will never do anything ever bigger than parenting. And yet we give it to everybody. And that can be very scary. Yeah, yeah don't, don't I, I know. I shifted and changed, changed in my parenting. There's no question. I mean, I became wiser. I became, I became less selfish. Um, I became, um, more open. Um, but so did Aaron. And so, yeah, the love, the love that blossomed between us in the end, it was always there, but just kept growing and growing and growing. I mean, it, for those people that have not read the story, when they read the part about when I climbed into bed with Aaron and he let me, which, of course, was not something he normally would do with his mother, uh, <laughs> because the worst thing in the, the Aaron, Aaron, Aaron absolutely hated it if anybody said he was a mother's boy. Okay, he hated it. <laughs> However, the greatest compliment he ever paid me, he did not pay me directly, but I do want to share it because it, it, it got it, it, it carried me through and carries me through every single day. His very best friend Luke, who he who he was with throughout all of this process and the one person he picked the phone up and said goodbye to on Sunday his very best friend Luke has, who has come alongside of me by the way I think Aaron and Luke must have had a conversation before Aaron died and I have this feeling he said to Luke could you walk with my mother for a year or so because Luke has become almost like a second son to me however back to what I wanted to say when Aaron and Luke were we're talking in the early days that we knew that Aaron was terminal. He, Luke, he told Luke, they were talking about me, and he said to Luke, and Luke shared it with me. He said to Luke, Luke, my mother. She is the one person in the world the one person in the world that I am the most comfortable with. Think about that. You can't be anything better to your child than that. And it gets me up every day and it keeps me going because that's what he thought of me and yet he would never have told me that because that's who we were to each other he didn't need to but when I climbed into bed with him that last day and I play 
that time over and over in my mind. And it is in the story, not everything, of course, but the important part of it is in the story and what we talked about. I, I, I had it all. And even though he had to leave us at 42, I wouldn't have traded a second of it to have had him here forever and a day and always and not have that relationship. So, you know, the one other thing I do want to add to this is that we never, Aaron never began taking the lead, but all of us, Cynthia, the children, myself, we never, his father, we never gave much energy at all to why. Because you get so tripped up in the why. Why, Aaron? Why cancer? Nobody else in our family has it. Nobody's gone down this path. Why, Aaron? Why now? Why couldn't he raise his boys? What had he done to deserve this? Nothing. But when you get caught up in that, you miss the essence of what is going on and what we needed to do to let him go. I'm so thankful that we didn't get caught up in the why. Because there is no answer to the why. None. No, there really there really isn't. And I, I agree with you that dwelling on that makes you miss things that you would have noticed otherwise. So it's definitely the right path yes. that, that you took. And I, I'll tell you something, folks. When you, when you hear a story like this, uh, Heather says it has legs. But to me, in many ways, it's timeless. And, and the reason why I say timeless is because we all live, especially here in the Western civilization, in societies, Canada and America in many ways are the same, where we don't do enough to sacrifice, when we don't do enough to be honest. We spend so much time hiding things and, and saying things out of turn or never being direct that we wonder why people don't pay attention. And when you have a story like this, especially when you have a, a, a show like this, which we just recorded, you're going to have people say, yeah, I, I need to be more honest. I, I need to do more than just hug my child. I need to be listening. I need to be watching. I need to be around more. Because without all of that, God forbid you have something like this happens mm. all that time. It was just wasted. What? Wasted for some, some silly job or mm. wasted for some belief in something you don't even know is true? You know, wait, wait, wasted in, in, in a, a, a set of principles that don't seem to work in this particular situation? You have to rebuild yourself new just to be able to, to handle it. And that's a lot what you've done. And I'll and I tell you something, Heather, and it, it, it's, it's up to you whether you want to take any of this seriously or not, but I believe that you can become a wonderful writer. And I believe there's still more of a story, hmm. uh, not just with Aaron, but also with yourself and maybe even with Luke, that that could continue, that people could see hmm. uh, the friendship and the joy and, and, and the love. And it doesn't have to just end with, with Aaron, but maybe it begins with him. Hmm. Maybe, maybe. I, I, I never say never anymore. Um, the last two years, we have had loss after loss after loss after loss. And yet, 
I have to tell you, Mark, I had a friend say to me when we knew Aaron was terminal, she said, Heather, you're on a journey and you are going to change. And she said, you can't stop it and you shouldn't want to, but you will become a different person. And I remember at the time thinking, well, no, <laughs> I'm Heather. And I love Aaron beyond anything possible. And I always have. I have loved him. From the mo and I told him that. For the moment the lights went on. After he got over the colic, it was just an instant. But I am changing. I'm aware that I'm changing. But um, would I want this? Absolutely 100% not. But with all the losses that have come our way, I wake up every day and I'm sitting here as I'm doing this interview looking out my window and I'm seeing the evening sun reflecting off of red roof because we have red roofs here. And I'm looking at it going, it's absolutely beautiful. That's just absolutely beautiful. So the intersection of sorrow and joy in me now is pretty powerful and is with me a lot and I am not although I have days of course I have days I have moments I have where I think he can't be gone he can't be gone I also know in my heart of hearts that life is full of beauty, always has been, always will be, and is full of sorrow. And it ends for all of us. And if we don't stay in these moments, we're wasting it. And that doesn't mean that I, for a moment, understand <laughs> the mystery of it all. I don't, or the journey, or why. But I know that it's about the moment. I know that now. And so I'm open. I And I like it. I like being open to the change, to the possibilities, to the if something comes at me and I don't know how I'm going to get up and around it or through it, that's okay because eventually it'll work its way out. <laughs> well, I, I think that Oftentimes we see this in history and we even see it in, in, in literature. But many times, and I've seen it in my own life and in other people's lives that I was connected with, when something really traumatic happens and they allow changes to happen, they start becoming leaders. And leaders, I don't know what you might be leading one day, but oftentimes it leads a person to become a leader in something because they now have not only a, a certain confidence, but also a certain depth that they didn't have before. And that's usually where the best mm -hmm. leaders get created out of. I remember the story that, yes. that Toni Morrison was telling, telling people in the interview one time. She goes, I wrote the book, Beloved, okay? I'm, mm -hmm. fumbling, I'm mm -hmm. fumbling around in my cabin, acting like an idiot, drinking some wine, didn't really notice that I <laughs> fell asleep because I'm drinking, drinking some wine, and the whole dawn manuscript gets burnt in the fireplace of the cabin I'm at. She wrote, she took two years to write this thing and it gets burned. 
So she said the only thing Don't you love she it? says I she goes I would never have had the strength if you told me this was going to happen to do it again. But she goes the moment I discovered that all I could do is sit there and just start typing away. That was the basis on wow. why she won the Nobel Peace Prize in literature. Beloved, she wow. rewrote it. Wow, out of the ashes. Out of the ashes. And she, 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 when, <laughs> no. when she wrote when she wrote this, Heather, she didn't write it like we all do with the backup of a computer disk and blah blah blah. She just wrote it straight in no. a typewriter, so that means there was no copies. What got burnt was it. It was only <laughs> all that was left was in her memories. She said, "Then is why I mm. felt I became a leader of my own destiny," and she did. And you could say, in many ways, mm. I know it might sound like a stretch. But if you think about Churchill and you think about Lincoln and you think about some of these great leaders, even Patton, people like that, that suddenly things happen and they go from just being a regular person to a superhero overnight just because of something that pushes them. And this is what happens when we allow changes like that. We become leaders. And I just think that's what's going to happen to you. Hmm. Well, let me share with you that my son became the superhero in those few months, you know? So that example, <laughs> no matter what what happens with the rest of my life, that example of superheroism is what will keep me going for until it is my time. And I know that so fully. Um, and that is why Aaron's story needs to be told. And, you know, I, I, I want to just jump back to the whole assisted dying and, and open the door because I mean this so sincerely. I um, I don't I've had a, a few a few comments from various sources of people who who have commented on, you know, it, it's wrong. It's wrong. OK. And I am at first when I saw it, I was like, no, you can't. I mean, because that's my son, right? Right. That's my that's my 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 boy. And then it hit me. No, this is okay because if we are able to express that, then we can have dialogue around it. Then we can talk about it. And 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 so I. I, I don't ever, I, I would like listeners to hear, I would never take that personally if anybody ever wanted to talk to me about that or to write me about that or to express it because it, it isn't for everybody, but it's, and it is important that we, we tread carefully. Okay. I get all that. Um, but if I could, touch lives by just letting people know that I'm open to the fear, the, the, the concern that it is something that, that is wrong. Um, and, 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 and if I could listen and hear I, and, and maybe give something back out of it that might help them to see all around the discussion. I'm so open for that. I am. Uh, well, uh, because I, I, for Aaron, I'm sorry. You go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Uh, I just, I just wanted to say that uh, it's always been my uh, my belief, especially with my experience with my father, that uh, there's nothing it, it seemed wrong about it at all, and nothing it felt wrong about it, because mm -hmm. I would know. I'm I'm not a bad judge of what's right and wrong. I don't. I just yeah. don't believe any act of love 
is fun is mm-hmm. fundamentally wrong. Yeah, and and, and there is one one more thing I want to share because I I I, I hold on to it. Aaron's not my first um, death. Aaron's not my first observation of being with someone dying. I was very very uh, blessed to have been with my mother when she passed away. I was about. I was, it was, it was about 12 years ago now. It was 13 years ago. I was much younger. I was terrified. My mom had Alzheimer's. My mother was a wonderful, wonderfully kind, special human being. She lived with my dad. You had to be. Um, but she was, and she was full of love. And I adored my mother. She got Alzheimer's. And in the end, she, although she was not eating, solids and hardly able to walk and hardly able to speak she called it they brought came to bring her her medication one day and she looked up at them at the nurses and she said no more it is enough and they called my father and they stopped her medication dad said she told you and she waited for all of us and she died about four or five days later and i happened to be the one who got the night shift the night she died. And I was so terrified. And it was my husband who said, Heather, she needs you, because he, he was trying to hold her hand, and she kept pushing him away, and she needed me. And I came beside her, and I held her hand, although I was just, I was having such panic attack. And a tear came out of her eye. And Bill said to me, my husband said, Heather, I'm just going out for a moment. And he got up, and he went behind the curtain, And my mom proceeded to die. Okay? It was beautiful beyond anything. I asked her in that moment if she would leave me some of her kindness. And I think she did. I was with my dad when he died. My dad died about six years ago. And if he knew that his favorite grandson, Aaron, was going to be following him, it would have killed him. I know it would have, but my father lived to be nearly 97, and he was the most religious man in the whole wide world, and he didn't want to die. He did not want to die, and he did everything not to die, and they actually had him, he was having a CAT scan because they thought they had, he had cancer, and he, he, his heart stopped, and he went code blue, and he came back. And then we all got there and it was a beautiful sunny day and he was surrounded by two ministers and all of his kids. And there was more hullabaloo going on than you can imagine. And when he actually left, we didn't know he was gone. Okay. Because there was so much activity in the room. And so I tell you those two stories because I, I had been with both of them. And I had someone ask me shortly before Aaron passed. They said, if your mom and dad had known that Aaron was going to pass, what would they say to you? And it was instant for me, Mark. And I chuckled and I said, they would both say to me, Heather, we were your dress rehearsal. Now go do your son well. Be with him and serve him well because we gave you the dress rehearsal. And I, I believe that so fully. I do. I do. I do as well. I, I, I definitely believe, uh, folks, that a story like this is not just honest and timeless, but it's really a lot about both service and sacrifice. Two things that 
in modern society we, we've seemed to shun and, and think it's old fashioned or think it's silly. But these things they, they make us who we are as human beings and they might even make us uh, somebody in the afterlife if you believe in that because those are the things that I feel that make us the most noble of creatures otherwise we're no bigger or better than than an insect we have to do and, and believe and, and expect more from us and that's what these sort of stories tell us Heather I want to thank you I believe this story will definitely continue and I'm hoping you want to come back maybe in the, in the near future and and have other things to to uh to explain and maybe to tell us about new new experiences or new writings from all that you've gone through. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the time, and uh, I really appreciate your interest and your care and your understanding. No, it is my honor, and it's certainly going to be our blessing. I really think that in many ways the show is going to help change people's lives, even if they don't realize it, because you can't listen to this and not be changed. It's just that serious and that mm-hmm. and that deep, but also that purely honest. I wish we had more of that in this society. The world would be a better place. Well, I, I'm humbled. I'm seriously humbled by your words because I don't. I'm humbled. So thank you for that. Well, I, I, I wish you well this evening over here. Heather, God bless, and thank you very much for having the strength to come on here. The show is called Strength to Be Human. You can see why. Sometimes you got to have strength just to be human. That's how hard it can be. <laughs> so I'm glad that you had the strength to do this because I'm not really sure others I know would. I'm not even sure I would. So um, you, 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 you leaps above honor. us. <laughs> no, it was my honor. And on that, I will say goodbye. Bye and good night. Take care. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, that's Strength to Be Human. I'm going to wrap up this show over here. You should be hearing it within a week or so. I thank you very much for that. Don't forget our, our email. Uh, we'll probably get a lot about this show, and, and maybe some of them I even have to forward to Heather because I can't answer everything. Uh, I'm, actually, I'm not even sure if she can answer everything. But people are going to have questions, and they should. All right, folks, good night as well, and God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.